you found the Digging Oak Island podcast, the podcaster's journey to discover the truth behind the Oak Island mystery. I'm Dave McBride. Thank you for downloading and listening. If you've been listening to and enjoying our little podcast, please consider helping out the show by becoming a patron. Go to patreon.com slash Island to learn more. Right. We have a bunch of emails and messages to get to, so let's get right to it. Let's start with our friend Peter, who writes in again and says, Once again, I have to question the logic on Oak Island. They find what seems to be a legit tunnel and decide to bring in a mining company. To dig into the tunnel? No. To dig where the tunnel might sort of eventually lead. If you twist it a bit. See graphic from show below. <laughs> now, consider the dimensions. Didn't they say they found 35 feet of tunnel? Looks like they're focusing 50 to 60 feet away. Okay, I get Sp- I get. Spooner said gold in the water at the, go- at the garden shaft or flowing from that direction. Isn't water flow kind of unreliable? Last season, they found followed claims of previous searchers who never found anything, and lo and behold, found nothing. Now there's this structure, possibly built by searchers who never found anything. So let's rebuild that shaft and hope it connects to a real actual tunnel 50 feet away. Huh? Offset chamber or offset pipe dream? Okay, 50 to 60 feet isn't that far, like my neighbor's house, but I'm skeptical. And I didn't, and didn't they do, didn't they then do the same thing with LIDAR anomaly? Maybe I missed a reason they weren't allowed to dig there. Instead, they hypothesize about a connection to a wharf, and it's once again, let's go towards some historical evidence that led nowhere previously and check that out. Wow, straps and scraps. TV loves activity. Can't wait for the Muon tech. If it can pinpoint an underground chamber, maybe they'd actually dig there. This money pit legend, 200-year-old red herring. At least they finally seem to be drilling boreholes in areas searchers seem to have ignored. Peter from South Jersey. Peter, great stuff. Um, Yeah, I'm surprised not to jump ahead too much, but we saw this anomaly on lot 30, this weird square anomaly, and we didn't really follow up or even talk about it again. In this episode, as I always say, if we don't go back to it, we know why. They actually looked at it, and there was nothing there, but they want to keep the scene where they show an anomaly just so that we still have in the back of our head some idea of something mysterious. I'm not I'm not saying this as a criticism, and I'm not trying to point anything out, or, or, or I'm just, this is just what they do. They've done it forever and ever. Um, also, there's... Other than that, there's really not a whole lot to add here. Your skepticism is noted and also very understandable. I've been saying I've been skeptical about the garden shaft from the beginning just because I know what it is. I love the ideas they have for what we're going to do with the garden shaft this season. It looks really cool. But you're correct when you say it is certainly a failed searcher shaft. So how excited can we really get about what might be at the bottom? I think that when you uh, get right down to it, your excitement level all depends on how you feel about Dr. Spooner's research and what that might mean for all of this stuff, right? Only time's going to tell. I think, though, I'm going to reserve my judgment uh, until after we see the outcome of this very big and very expensive project of reopening and refortifying this garden shaft. Great stuff, Peter. Thanks for writing in again. Let's go now to the wonderfully named Dave on Facebook, who says, God, I love this show. I've noticed something that until now somehow escaped me. If we create a drinking game where you have to take a slug every time someone says, yep, yeah, or yes, we'd all be so polluted that we would no longer care whether this was going on. 
<laughs> I think I found the solution to any fan's wariness of the editing. Make a game of it. Continue to keep us entertained, even when the show makes us roll our eyes. Also, just a quick answer to your question. The episode title, Wharf and Pieces, is a really bad pun on the book War and Peace. Peace out, Dave in Texas. And with that last bit in mind, let me just read this message that I got from Joe on Twitter where he says, Wharf and Pieces. I think it's a play on war and peace, and a bad one, in fact. And also, the aforementioned Peter later wrote another email and said, I finally got the extremely strained pun for Wharf and Pieces, the title of the December 6th episode. Let me just say, Tolstoy would be rolling over in his grave, and probably not rolling with laughter. Peter from South Jersey. Gentlemen, I think you're all correct about the title. Thank you very much. There's another one of these this week. And yes, it is a terrible pun. Uh, terrible because it just didn't really make sense, but... Also, if it was supposed to be a joke, which a pun is, it didn't land with me. But, you know, it should have because War and Peace, Wharf and Peace is okay. I see it. The one this week, I don't get it. I mean, anyway, and just to circle back to Dave's original message uh, about the drinking game, my friend, you are the latest to add a suggestion to the age old idea of an Oak Island drinking game. This discussion has been going on for a long time. There's some wonderful ideas out there. My wife thought we should do it every time somebody nods. Um, I love yours, but I do fear if I participated in this little game that you've uh, invite, invented here, um, the subsequent podcast probably would not be very listenable for all of you folks. Thanks again, Dave. All the best. All right. Let's hear now from Chris, who emailed us. Hello, certified arborist and Oak Island fan here. Wanted to chime in on a professional observation regarding the depth at which Gary and company found iron artifacts in season 10, episode four. While digging, they show the team right next to a spruce tree, maybe 20 to 30 years old at most. When they pan down, I notice the root collar on the subject spruce tree is buried up to the first whorl of branches. The root collar is where the tree trunk meets its root system. This is usually evident by a root flare where the tree trunk flares outward at the base. This tree was obviously buried by at least a foot and likely very recently as this treatment will lead to the death of the subject tree over a few years due to soil compaction and the lack of oxygen at the roots. There was also a newly planted tree in the scene, so they surely know that soil was added to this location as they have taken part in its restoration. Yet Prometheus chose to lead people on with their, quote, look how deep this is narrative. Love the pod. Long live the curse of Oak Island, Chris. Chris, I'm not sure I'm following everything you're saying here about the tree. I'm not sure it's smart enough to understand some of the details, some of the words you're using. Um, but I love your analysis. I think I'm getting the point, or at least maybe I am. So Chris, let me just come out and say it like this. Are you concluding they planted this tree or they planted the artifacts they're finding? I mean, how far are we going here? Or are you just saying they actually just know the fact that these things were found as deep as they were really isn't all that incredible and probably not something natural? Is that what you're getting at? I mean, you make some terrific points and you're obviously an expert in this. So please let me know if I'm understanding you correctly. I hate to speak for you and I hate to put some sort of accusation into your words, even though, you know, you do have some of it there. Prometheus chose to lead people um, on. Right. Uh, I hate to speak for you. Um, maybe you didn't intend that much, but I, 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 I guess I'm not following. Are you saying that they knew the thing was there when they buried it? I'm just not. 
I think I'm following you, but I'm not. And I want to leave it up to you. So write me back if you're listening, because this is some fascinating stuff you're getting here for sure. Um, thank you so much, Chris, for your expertise. And I, I do look forward to hearing from you again. Hopefully you're listening to this podcast. Okay. Let's go now to our friend Mark who writes, Hey, Dave, just finished watching the episode and listening to the podcast. Collecting LiDAR data is cheap nowadays. Steal some kids' lunch money for a year and you can afford it too. Doubt it would be more than 5000 Canadian. And I'm sure whoever they hired would toss in a bit off discount with all the free exposure their company's getting on air and all. Have to admit, the area on Lot 30 does stand out. Looks like they did find some artifacts in that area. I've attached a screenshot of the money pit area as well as some as well as some are wondering where they are drilling in relation to the Dunfield crater. Looks like the grid is a one by one meter. P.S. An avid scuba diver. I, I like the Bermuda Triangle show and all the Oak Island episodes with divers. It makes me uh, giddy giggly like a school little schoolgirl. Mark always has a way of saying things. Thanks, Mark. Uh, great email as always. Uh, I did watch the first couple episodes of that uh, Bermuda Triangle thing. It's fine. Uh, I mean. It seems nowadays history has like dozens of shows like this. And I guess the point I was making last week when we brought all this up is that it's really only Laginas that keep me coming back, you know. Thank you for your info on the LIDAR. I'll put the images Mark is referring to on our Facebook page as well. All right. Time to hear again from our friend Jock who says, Hi, Dave. Again, thank you for your dedication. Check out what Andre Kostopoulos, a very good non-biased archaeologist, has to say. Read some of his other blogs about Oak Island. Highlights. Could be indigenous, but they would not spin that for obvious reasons. 1500s, because it is ars- because it has arsenic in it, Dr. Kostopoulos thinks it still could be it could be still natural. Uh, so not from the 1500s, Templar or Portuguese. As usual, they always bring in their experts that agree with the sort they're trying with the story they're trying to spin. This comment is crazy good. Four grams. It has to mean something. Dr. Kostopoulos says it is meaningless since the measurement in grams occurred in the 1790s by the French. His is what I mean about, uh, this is what I mean about them spinning evidence without any careful thought. Not very scientific. Also, if this was a weight measurement, a penny is 2.5 grams in comparison. If they're talking about truckloads of treasure, a penny's worth of treasure is not worthwhile. You would want pounds unless they are weighing a single diamond. Anyway. Check out Dr. C in his blog and maybe do an interview. Cheers, Jock. Thank you, Jock. Great stuff. The blog uh, Jock is referring to is called archeothoughts.wordpress.com. Um, he doesn't have a lot of information, a lot of stuff on Oak Island. He does other things there. Um, but the latest one he had is a pretty deep dive into this supposed trade token that we uh, heard about earlier this season that Jock is talking about here. Jock, this is what we always complain about on the show, right? This is a cool find. There's no way around it. It was a cool find. But can we explore all the possibilities of what it means <laughs> and not just the one that makes it seem like treasure or what have you? There are other clues that could lead us to what's here and a real exploration into something would be uh, would be much appreciated. And the obvious issue with this particular piece, at least in my mind, was the condition. Um, it was in just terrible shape and it seems like a clear inability to ever actually identify what it is, is what we're going to be really facing here. We're never really going to know what it was or what it was used for other than some best guesses. And we're only going to see the best guesses that these people make that fit the narrative. I'm sure they're making others. In fact, I know many have. So anyway, all right, let's finish up our email section with an email from a listener named John who says, hi, Dave, um, longtime listener, love the show. 
really enjoying the new season so far. A couple of thoughts I've had while watching. While discussing the gold in the water samples in episode one, Dr. Spooner made a point to say if the gold were deposited by humans. It doesn't surprise me that he said if, but it does surprise me that the editors let that get through. It's something you have discussed on your podcast, but I don't think the possibility of gold being a natural deposit has ever been discussed on the show. The fact that the editors let that slip through makes me wonder if that's where all of this is heading. Will this season conclude with the gold is a natural deposit and perhaps even the original work in the money pit was simply a gold mine? And I get the impression, and the show has all but said it, that the work in the garden shaft is less about finding the truth about the money pit, more about allowing the crew to actually get underground. It will make for good television and perhaps fulfill a lifelong dream of Rick's, but it's clearly not the best way to further explore that area. I'll be disappointed if this derails all the rest of the exploratory drilling going on elsewhere in the money pit. Can they even drill new boreholes while another team is working to shore up an old shaft just feet away? Thanks for your time, John. Uh, Great stuff, John. On your first point there, let me say we did discuss the possibility of gold being natural. Of course, you know, uh, I'm not an expert on this, but uh, even if you just did a little research on your own, just look, get out, get out your map of, of Mahome Bay and just follow Oak Island to the north, a little bit to the west, and you'll find a body of water there called the Gold River, which empties right into Mahone Bay, literally right on top of, of Oak Island. And I doubt the river was named for Goldie Hawn, uh, but let's see what comes of it, right? Rather than speculating, um, let you know, of course, it might be natural. We all know that it is not something the show would focus too much attention on, but it certainly can be. And on your comment on the garden shaft, um, we've kind of hit this already, but I I think we just need to be patient, right? Will this lead to some major discovery? I wouldn't put my money on that um, because as like you say, it is a previously failed searcher shaft, Um, but it will make for great television. And again, I'm going to talk about this even more in the next, uh, in the next segment here. Uh, If this was, you know, if this is all just getting under there and seeing this and finding a shaft, I mean, that part enough is cool to me. I I, I don't, I, again, I think my expectations are that we're going to see something really neat, maybe find some interesting searcher stuff here, uh, which to me is fascinating. But I know for those of you waiting to see a treasure, it's not as fascinating, uh, but it is to me. So I, I'm, I'm excited for it. Anyway, John, keep those emails coming. I think this was your first email and it was a terrific debut. <laughs> That's all for the emails this week. Remember, if you have any comments or questions, just email me, diggingoakisland at gmail.com. All right, before we start the episode review, let me just mention again the Patreon. Folks, um, creating a podcast takes time and money, so I do humbly ask for your help and ask that you please consider becoming a patron of the show. If you think this podcast is worth five bucks a month to you, then go to patreon.com slash Island and sign up to become a patron. Patrons get exclusive access to a live chat during the U.S. broadcast of each new episode of The Curse of Oak Island. 
And that chat is just so much fun. So come and join us. Uh, again, go to patreon.com slash Island to sign up and support the podcast. Remember, it is only five bucks a month and you can cancel at any time. And a big thank you to our friend Josh for signing up this week. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome to the family, my friend. And also, if you prefer to make a one-time donation, you could do so via Venmo. Um, you can use the username at Dave McBride Music. I'm a musician by trade, and that's sort of my virtual tip jar there for when I play and people don't want to have don't have cash or don't want to use it. So I use that there. Uh, thank you so much to Brian for your generous donation this week. I can't thank you enough, Brian. Great, great stuff. I, I really do appreciate it. All right. It's time to discuss season 10. Episode five of the Curse of Oak Island called Duck D U Say D U C sorry Duck It Out Duck It Out. Again, if it's a joke, it's not a good one because it went over my head. <laughs> duck it out. Okay. Anyway, I'm sure somebody will tell me, and just like this past week when I read it, I'll kind of, you know, hang my head for being so <laughs> clueless on something so obvious. Now we got a couple of places to talk about this week, so let's start it off with the money pit in uh, season ten, episode five. Here um, we see this show open with Rick meeting with the Dumas Company foreman. This is the these are the guys, the mining company that's coming in to rebuild the Garden Shaft mine, and he's seeing the work being done. And just quickly, just I mean, you're going to see this all as the season goes on, but. Just to sort of get you up to, get to date, they're going to create this sort of concrete pad all around the top of it and then put up what they called a waterproof shaft. Uh, I don't know how waterproof it can possibly be, but a waterproof wooden shaft. Uh, and then they say that they can then do lateral, quote, lateral tunneling off the main shaft. So I kind of put some of those things together in my mind and I'm thinking to myself, first of all, I don't know if you have such underground water as is obviously the case in the Money Pit area, uh, because it has been for 225 years, how you can create a wooden shaft that is waterproof. But be that as it may, once you start tunneling sideways from said shaft, how do you create the waterproofing then? Um, it just seems like physics is going to come into play here a little bit. I'm not so sure, I, but man, I can't wait to watch them try. This looks like it's going to be really cool. Now, later on, we see a um, new borehole being drilled. It's J15.25. This is another one of these exploratory boreholes that's trying to follow this tunnel that's leading from south of the garden shaft north towards the garden shaft itself. Um, they mark, uh, find wood down, I think it said at about 107 feet, right, where they're expecting to. So the next thing they do is run a sonar scan down into the hole. Uh, and we see Steve um, Guptill, Paul Troutman, and Scott Barlow on the scene to do the sonar scanning. They get this really cool image. I mean, it's definitely squared off. It definitely looks like a tunnel of some kind. It's definitely, you know, horizontally running. There's no doubt about that. It's really cool, really neat to look at um, and interesting to explore for sure. So what they did, and this was really cool, and this is something that I'm really happy we're doing a lot of this year because... It's something I was hoping we would always be doing a lot of, right? They put a camera down into the hole to take a look, see. I've done this already this season, doing it again. And uh, there's some great visuals here, some really cool stuff. They find what is obviously a beam there that you're looking at or maybe even a couple of posts. Um, I mean, we seem to be looking down the course of a tunnel here. 
Rick is obviously excited. And I think everybody else is too. I think this is kind of what we're going to be doing with this for a while. Um, we're going to be sort of exploring the possibility of this tunnel. I don't know if the garden shaft is going to allow us to see what's at one end. Um, I am wondering at what point will they be able to put a can down in there or drill something out if they can't get off it from the garden shaft and see where this goes from somewhere else. It'd be interesting to see where this all leads, but it's still very early days and they still seem to be just doing confirmation work. All right. Um, I'm not going to take a break here. We'll go right into lot 32. We start off by seeing Laird with his two archaeologists with him, Emma and Helen, uh, they're excavating the spot right by the beach that we talked about earlier, the tree and the, and the, um, you know, the pieces of iron that maybe from a stove of some kind down there, they're excavating that now. Um, and Laird says some interesting stuff. He says, quote, we have evidence of unrecorded people were here. And he also says, which quote could point to more unrecorded, um, earlier activity somewhere else on the lot. Those are quotes from Laird. So Laird thinks they're onto something, something they don't know what it is. Now, Laird is a professional, and he's also very smart. He's not going to make any speculating. He doesn't do that. Uh, he just says this is earlier stuff. Not really sure um, uh, what it could be, but it's something we don't know of. You know, you get the idea, right? Uh, anyway, he also says uh, we need to quote, we need to know why they were here. And so he's definitely on to something. He's de definitely thinks they're on to something. He thinks they're on to some sort of, uh, what, what's, what's, what's the word I'm looking for? He thinks they're on to some sort of unrecorded inhabitants right here on this lot or unrecorded work, uh, something not known to history. Could it be searcher work? Could it just be whoever lived there doing some stuff? Sure, of course, all of that. And that's kind of what Laird's referring to. The thing that bothers me about it is, they don't really tell us what he's talking about. He just says those things. We got some evidence of unrecorded people. Well, what's the evidence? Is it more than what we saw last week? And when you say people and the possibility that might lead to evidence or more evidence in other places on the lot, why are you saying that? What is they obviously cut all that out. That was pretty frustrating to me. I love to hear Laird talk about the possibilities in these things, but what he's you know, what he's referring to, what evidence he's actually leaning on is just basically ignored. Uh, it was a strange decision. Um, I hope we learn more about it, but it really was a strange decision to me. Anyway, the next part we get from lot 32 is Gary and Jack in a different area further inland um, doing some more metal detecting. In fact, what they're doing is, as you can see, and Gary is explaining this, he metal detects, puts down a target, comes back and looks at it later. Um, I'm not sure why he does it that way. Maybe he just he's out there by himself. He doesn't have somebody to kind of do all this and the camera camera isn't there. That's what I'm mostly thinking is he's doing this work when the cameras are not there because it's just it's not very interesting unless <laughs> unless there's a hit, right? So there's no reason to follow him around. Kind of neat way to sort of uh, what's the word? Uh, maximize the time of the cameraman. So they find another piece of scrap metal. Gary says it's a barrel hoop. Um, and then a little bit later, they find another piece of unidentifiable metal. Um, and it, it does look unidentifiable to me at the time. Gary and Jack uh, have some ideas, again, thinking it might be related to a barrel. But then they turn out to be, you know, pretty well justified in that because they show these pieces to Carmen Legg. 
Now, the second piece they find, which is a longer kind of stranger looking piece, he says might be the top of a barrel loop. But the other piece, he says, again, is from what he would call a 200 gallon wet barrel, what I would call a keg. He says it's something that would carry, you know, like beer or whiskey or more likely rum, That's 200 gallons of rum. Uh, I could do a lot with 200 gallons of rum. Uh, anyway, <laughs> he thinks that it might be from the mid 1700s. And the interesting thing about it is most likely what he means is that, and, and he does explain this, uh, what he's talking about is it's not something that a private person would have. Right. It's a big keg. So we're talking something industrial or even military. And I think that's, uh, you know, that's for him to say. I can't for by any means dispute any of that. Carmen says the dates. And one of the dates he happens to say is 1740. And you're going to see why that is exactly the way it needs to be. Exactly. You know, the one they focus on, because in the next segment, we're going to talk about 1746 quite a bit. So it's right in the wheelhouse. The show has a great way of doing this. Um, and you have to think now, because this 1740s date is going to uh, correlate so wonderfully with a date we're about to talk about in our uh, research section here that's coming up in the war room, you know, you have to wonder, are they messing around with the timeline a little bit here? I mean... <clears throat> to make it seem like Corey and Maul comes on, spoiler alert, we're going to get to it. Corey and Maul comes on to talk about 1746, and then they happen to find a piece from 1740. Uh, boy, that just seems like a little bit of a, um, a little bit of a, a coincidence. I like Claude's comment online during the Patreon discussion. He said, could it be a large barrel of oxen feed? Had to find something to... <laughs> to feed all those oxen whose shoes they found last year. Uh, Claude, um, yeah, maybe. And then he also asks, no doubt, not doubting his knowledge. Okay, maybe I am. How do you come up with these dates? All of those are good questions. Um, you know, they're all good questions and we don't know what it is. He thinks it's from a big barrel. He can get that from the size of it. I'm sure he's seen many other barrels. Uh, the dates are probably pretty wide range. Um, but I did like... One of the things you wrote on here, which is, I mean, barrels are still made this way today as they were 200 years ago. I mean, I would hope somebody like Carmen Legg would know the difference and would be talking about that, would be putting his reputation on the line to say something like that. Uh, but again, this is all we're going to hear, guys. This is all we're going to hear of this. So what we know is that on this lot, there was potentially a barrel of something wet. That's the best guess we can make. It's not confirmed. We don't know it for sure, but we got to think about it that way, that it's not confirmed. The best guess we can make is that on lot 32, which is not the money pit, it's not the swamp, uh, this there is a evidence of people doing something there, and there's evidence that there might have been a really large keg of something wet. Does this tell you the Knights Templar were there or the French army burying treasure? No. But I will say this, it is neat. And if it is some sort of actual evidence of something that we don't have recorded, well, that might be a good way to research here. That might be a good avenue to go down with your historical research, which we're going to get to just after the break.
All right. We get a war room session, and I'm not going to call this one a crackpot session because I don't think this is crackpot. I think this is theorist session. This is, or better yet, research session, right? What we're not, what we're doing here is presenting research and what that might mean. That's different than just sort of formulating a theory based on a lot of silliness. What we have is friend of the show, Corey and Maul, uh, and he is joined by a fellow researcher, and her name is Charlotte Wheatley. Now, we asked Corey and Maul if he was going to be part of the research team that that Rick talked about at the end of last season. Uh, he would not confirm nor deny that, um, but he sort of <laughs> made a, a little hint that, yes, he might actually have been uh, on that uh, part of that team. So here we see confirmation that he is indeed now one of the researchers, um, and I think that makes a lot of sense. Again. A lot like we've mentioned about Gretchen Cornwall, last, I think I have her last name right, last week. These are not, um, you're not just bringing in a theorist to theorize something. What you're doing is bringing in a, or I'm sorry, a researcher to research something. What you're bringing is in a theorist to kind of help with the research because they've done a lot of research on this already. Um, and so I kind of, you know, when when you have somebody like, I think there's a difference here and I think people are going to, are going to you know, come at me on this. There's a difference between Corey and Maul and Gretchen Cornwall. Corey and Maul's been doing this unrelated to Oak Island for years and years and years. And he's just sort of come across the Oak Island thing. At least this is the way I get it. Um, as part of a greater research into sort of the post Templar history. And he's done unbelievable amounts of research for years and years and has an incredible amount of information in his head as well as at his fingertips. So and we've heard from him about theories he's worked with before. I don't think what we're talking about here is the same thing as Gretchen Cornwall, who is an author, um, who is a theorist, who believes in sort of a greater uh, theory of the Templars and all this kind of stuff. Even from this research we're seeing here, Corian Mall is separating himself from the other theories he's talked about. He's talked about Templar-related theories and I know he'll say, no, it's all related, but now he's not talking about Templars. He's talking about a French naval expedition in the 1740s. So you see, he's his net is cast very wide as opposed to a theorist whose net is usually cast just in the area of their theory, just so they can get their theory proven because that's what they're what they're trying to do. Anyway, I hope I didn't ramble too much about that. Corian and Charlotte are uh, part of this new French research team. And Corian says, quote, could we find any, that they were trying to, quote, could we find any relation between Oak Island and perhaps Mahome Bay and the 1746 expedition of the French Armada, which was the one led by the Duc d'Anville, who we've talked about quite a bit. Now, just quickly, Duc d'Anville was a French um, captain uh, or, or officer in the French Navy after the fortress at Louisbourg was fell. It was the biggest fortress in North America. We talked about this so much. After that fell into the British hands, the Duke d'Anville led a huge armada to that area to take the fort back. Now, what Corian Mall has found is that Louis XV, who was the king at the time, sent two ships ahead of this armada. Now, the logs of these ships, which he found, seems to be suggesting that these ships were in Nova Scotia for two months, and yet 
left no record in their logs or anywhere else that they could find so far of what they did and why they were there. In fact, it appears that one of these, one of the officers of these ships even said that he wouldn't speak about where he went and why. So these two ships, which were crewed with more men than they needed, okay? So they point out the size of the crew at the beginning of this, and that's to show you, you don't need 200 men or whatever that number was to sail a ship. So there were extra men who were on board to do something. Now, what were they doing? They obviously weren't fighting in Louisbourg because they didn't end up there apparently. Instead, they're here doing this. But what is this? That's tough. We don't know that. So what we could figure out here is that this these two ships with a crew that's an extra crew sailed to the area of Nova Scotia on what can only be called a clandestine meeting. And I think that Corey Amal is absolutely right when he makes that that conclusion, because you see on that thing where the on the on those records where the captain said he was not going to talk about it. Why wouldn't he talk about it if it were a regular um, just a regular order given to him. It was obviously meant for something a little more secret. Now I reached out to Corey and Maul and all I said to Corey and Maul was, if you have anything to add, please feel free to do so. And here's what he sent me back. God, we love this guy. And this is why listen to this. He said, quote, Charlotte and I have been running the Oak Island research operation in France since the beginning of this year. One thing we did is to compile an archive with all the original ship's logs from the Danville expedition. It has meant very long hours combing archives and studying endless handwritten French journals. Charlotte is amazing, and it's a great privilege to be able to work with her. What you saw on the show is based on our research into the vanguard of the expedition. Two ships were sent ahead under one commander with the personal orders from the French king, Louis XV. The two ships arrived on the Acadian shore in early June 1746. At that point, Duvenot, which I think I'm saying correctly, the commander of one of the ships, does something extraordinary. He sends the Castor, which is one of the two ships, off on a solo mission to an area near Newfoundland, despite its captain's objections. From the journals, he seems surprised and annoyed that he is sent off. Additionally, the captain of the Castor wishes uh, indicates that he wishes to make contact with General de Beauharnois of the French armed land forces in Acadia, which Duvenot flatly refuses. That struck us as odd, given the fact that they were supposed to lead in the, in the main armada that was to follow them. The Aurore, which is the other ship, and the Castor split up on June 4th, 1746, six days later, the Aurore is recorded near La Heve, which I thought or La Have, and then at a latitude of 4438, probably in St. Margaret's Bay. This means that the ship at least passed Mahone Bay on June 10th. They don't return to what is, I can't even say this word, Chibuktu, uh, which is today Halifax Bay, until June 13th. The Castor only returns to Chibuktu a month later. On July 9th, and the ships don't really join up again until August 4th when they set sail back to France. There are large gaps in Duvenot's journal for June and July. On his return to France, when he submits his journal to the Admiralty, he adds a personal letter. I don't think the show captured the full intrigue there, but they do show the letter on the screen. Duvenot writes, quote, I will not speak to anyone about this place, but I am obliged to warn you 
that is difficult to hide it from the quantity of people who have knowledge of it. I send my journal of navigation, end quote. It is unclear what this place is. Perhaps it is the, quote, particular destination from the king's written orders, but there's no way to check with that assumption without further info. They left out what we consider to be the most intriguing fact about the whole expedition, but I can't share that yet as it might still air. But, they, but if they don't, I would love to tell you uh, end of season since it will make you look at this whole expedition with different eyes. Good luck with the podcast and all the best from the lowlands, Corian. You see why we love Corian all so much. So this is, listen, could it all turn out to be nothing? Maybe. But it is a really cool avenue to go down. Does it mean these guys buried treasure on Oak Island? No. But what did they do? What were they doing? This is the part of the history that I love. And when you read this stuff from Corey and Maul, this is where I go back to my criticism of the show in that I don't want to look at barrel hoops as much as I want to hear this. I want to hear those things that Corian said, because those are the fascinating things. Um, But I understand what the show did. As I mentioned before, they tried to connect it with a find of some kind, Corian Mall's research with a find of some kind, to sort of get you even more intrigued about the possibilities. I get that. I won't won't go too far with that one. Just wanted to mention a a couple of things from the Patreon. Jeff said, if they were headed to a particular destination, I would think it more likely that a retrieval was the mission versus a deposit. And that is the case here. So were they, why would they, that's the first question that comes out. Why would they be ordered by the king to bury to create a hundred foot shaft on an island or and you know or even a peninsula depending on what the water looked like then an island in Mahone Bay and deposit this stuff. What were they depositing? Why would they be doing that? Why would they do that ahead of the Armada? Um and why would it all be under the same jurisdiction? I, I don't know the answer to that. And that's a good question. So anytime you get these this research, those are the things you have to follow. And maybe those are some of the things that Corian's talking about and might find out as he can, continues going. Steve said they could just um, they could have just been turning Oak Island into a military launching zone for the reclamation of Louisbourg. Of course, that's exactly right. Who knows what they were doing? That's what we have to find out. But for whatever reason, they don't write down what it is or where it is. That just seems weird. You know, those are the kind of gaps in official government information that causes conspiracies. And, you know, sometimes there's a there there and sometimes there isn't. Uh, and I definitely leave it to Corey and Maul to find out if there really was. Lori said, and I agree with you, really interesting documentations, very intriguing. I couldn't say it better myself. This is something I hope we hear a lot more about as the season goes on. All right, that's going to do it for this episode of the Diggin' Oak Island podcast. Thanks, guys, for joining me. Don't forget, you can help out the show by becoming a patron. As I said before, if you think the show's worth five bucks a month to you, then head over to patreon.com slash Island to learn more. And remember, you can always make a one-time donation via Venmo to the podcast. Just use the username Dave McBride Music. Also, if you would like to help out the show in another way, you could really help us out by giving us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Uh, we could definitely use some more on Apple. We haven't had some in a while. We've got a few here and there, but uh, we need a couple more. Uh, they do help to get the show out, and that's always great. Thanks, everybody, who has done so, and thank you, everyone, in advance for, uh, for doing it, um, You know, for taking the time, for the kind words, all that. Thank you so much. 
Also, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. Just go to your search bar and put in at Digging Oak Island. If you have any questions or comments that you want to send directly to me, you can do so via email at digginoakisland at gmail.com. And just keep in mind, if you do send me an uh, email or a direct message on social media, I might just answer it here on the podcast. Um, so if you don't want your message read for whatever reason, and people sometimes do that quite often, actually, just make a note of that for me. I'll do my best to, uh, to answer any questions that you might have or, uh, or, or anything like that directly to you. Well, as Dave Blankenship used to say, it is crown time. So until we speak again, I'm Dave McBride. Thank you for listening to Digging Oak Island.